Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider what can modern retellings teach us about the complexities and vibrancy of ancient foundational texts? I learned so much from this conversation, and I'm just thrilled to share it with everyone. We're speaking with Vaishnavi Patel about her debut novel, Gai Kei. Gai Kei is a feminist retelling of the Indian epic, the Ramayana, or Ramayana, the pronunciation varies depending on the dialect. I knew embarrassingly little about this colossally significant text before reading Gai Kei and preparing for this episode and speaking with Vaishnavi. And now I feel like this incredibly rich world has opened up in front of me. (laughs) And instead of beating myself up for my ignorance beforehand, I would just like to say, isn't that one of the magnificent things about reading? You know, the key that it offers into these universes? Absolutely. And you're highlighting one of the benefits of a modern retelling like Gaiki. It can provide an entree that feels accessible into foundational texts, which is especially helpful when you're talking about texts that are from times and places that are different from your own. Of course, Gaiki is a modern feminist retelling, which complicates the way it's been received. We're going to talk about that with Vaishnavi. But first, a little more about Gaiki. In the Ramayana, Gaiki is a peripheral character. She's the stepmother of Prince Rama, and she sends him into exile so her own son can assume the throne. But in Vaishnavi's novel, Gaiki is the protagonist of the story. She's a celebrated warrior and a beloved queen, and it becomes clear why she acted as she did. Gaiki was an instant New York Times bestseller and a Book of the Month Club selection. Vaishnavi's accomplishment is all the more impressive when you consider that she wrote Gaikei while she was still a law student focusing on constitutional law and civil rights. In fact, she graduated from law school mere months ago. Yeah, such an underachiever. I know, right? We started by asking her to tell us more about the Ramayana, the story it tells, and its historical significance. Here's what she said. The Ramayana is one of the oldest epics out there. There's disagreement about exactly when it was first conceived of, but there's written versions as many as three to 4,000 years ago. And it tells the story of Ram, who is a prince of a big kingdom and also a god who has been reincarnated on earth to help rid the world of evil. So Ram has three brothers. He grows up in a palace with his dad, three mothers, And he marries a beautiful princess named Sita and everything seems to be going great. He's about to take the throne when from seemingly kind of out of nowhere, one of his stepmothers, Skaikai, decides to call in favors that the king owes her to exile Ram and put her own blood son on the throne. So Ram gets exiled for 14 years He goes into the forest with his wife and with one of his other brothers, Lakshman, and they live there for many years, sort of in like peace and quiet. And then one day, Ravan, who is this demon king, comes from seemingly out of nowhere and hatches this plot to kidnap Sita. 
So he kidnaps Sita. He brings her back to his kingdom of Lanka, which is Sri Lanka. And um, Ram decides to go march off and save her. So he marches through basically half of India. He passes through many kingdoms. He sort of sets them to rights because injustice is growing across the world. And eventually he fights Ravan for like 10 days, kills him, brings Sita back home and finally becomes king. And then there's this little epilogue to the Ramayana where Ram overhears one of his subjects talking about how Sita is tainted because she lived in the house of another man. And so Ram exiles Sita to the forest, kind of ironically, and she gives birth to their children there. And that's sort of the end of the story. So it's a long epic. It's been basically told and retold nonstop for thousands of years. And to this day, it's probably one of the most, if not the most important sort of religious story in India and for most Hindus. So, you know, growing up, I read comics about it. I watched TV shows about it, cartoons, live action, movies, like you name it. There's that media of the Ramayana. It's sort of a real cultural touch stone to the point where even non-Hindus living in India know about the Ramayana. It's the basis for one of the biggest festivals, Diwali. So it sort of permeates Indian and Hindu culture everywhere. Um, I took this beloved story and I kind of gave it a good tweak um, to get to Kaikei. But Kaikei obviously tells the story of the evil stepmother character who sets off the whole epic by exiling Ram and then just sort of disappears. And so this book asks sort of what if she had reasons for doing what she did? Like, what if the story was a little bit different and we can understand her actions rather than them just being sort of like spur of the moment jealousy, which is what we get in the Ramayana. Why did you decide that you wanted to write a version of the story from Kaike's perspective? So one of the beautiful things about um, oral tradition is that, you know, you get to hear the story and you get to interact with it. Not to say that books are not interactive, but like if you have questions for the text, the text is not going to answer them for you, like pause the story, give you an answer. But when you hear stories from your grandma, you can stop the clock at any point and have discussions. You know, I grew up hearing these stories about the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and all these other epics. And we would always ask questions like, why did this happen? I don't like this, et cetera, et cetera. And one time my mom was there when we were talking about the exile of Ram and she sort of jumped in and she was like, well, without Kaikeyi, Ram would never kill Ravan. So in a way, Kaikeyi is kind of a hero in this story. My grandma was like, no, no, no. Like she doesn't know that's what's going to happen. She's just exiling her son out of jealousy. Like that's really evil. And they kind of got into a little debate about it. And then we moved on. Um, but that aside sort of stuck with me for a long, long time. And I kept finding myself like wanting to sort of read from her perspective, wanting to know more about her. So I would do these little bits of research all of the time to try to like figure out what her side of the story was. And while I learned interesting little tidbits about her life from the actual, you know, long form epic, which is very rarely read in its entirety because it's longer than the Odyssey, I 
also never found like an actual piece of media from her perspective. And so eventually I was like, I'm just going to write it. And then when I decided I was going to write it, all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, I have to do a lot more research. So I like read the full Ramayan cover to cover, as it were. I read a bunch of articles. I read other versions of the Ramayan. And I realized that it's not just Kaikeyi who's fascinating. There's like lots of other takes on lots of other characters. And so then Kaikeyi sort of becomes the more chonky book it is today. <laughs> As you were alluding to, in the current popular version of the epic, Kaike is, in essence, the evil stepmother. Mm-hmm. But your research, as I understand it, shows that she needn't be seen that way. And as you said, and I'm quoting you, we are not forced by the source material to turn the Ramayan into a story where women are naive or malicious or impure. Choosing alternative narratives is not an act of rewriting. It is an act of honoring the foundations of the myth. Can you say a little more about what you found in the source material to support a more positive view of women and women generally and maybe Kaike specifically? And in what way does your alternate narrative honor the foundations of the myth? Yeah, so I learned a lot that I was sort of surprised to discover in my research process. So first in the main Ramayan text, you get this like throwaway line where it says that Kaikai's bride price, what the what Dashrath gives her father in order to win her hand in marriage, is the promise that her son will be king. So she like relies on this promise in order to get married. Her father probably wouldn't have agreed to this match without some sort of promise that eventually his grandson is going to be on the throne. So that's very important. And then the king just sort of decides to forget about this and like abandon it and pick Ram to be king instead. And so I feel like even that one small detail makes Kaike's actions so much less like, oh, I just really want to screw over one son and more like, I was promised this. I'm going to ask for what I was promised. Mm-hmm. But that detail is never, I never heard of that. I literally had to t- check the translation and be like, is this an error? <laughs> and I found the original Sanskrit and I do not speak Sanskrit. I texted my mom who does speak it. And I was like, is this right? And she was like, yeah, that's right. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like a whole view of Kaike just shifted. Um, that's like one small detail, but there's other versions of the Ramayana that are accepted as like true and often taken into popular account that also show these little differences. So in the Ramcharitmanas, which is um, the popularized version of the Ramayana, like the people's version, um, that was, I think, like written 500 years ago, 400 years ago, that took it out of Sanskrit and into a commonly spoken language. The goddess of knowledge, Saraswati, actually comes to Mantra, Kaikeyi's servant, to sort of make Mantra tell Kaikeyi to exile Ram. Basically, the implication is that the gods want Kaikeyi to do it because they want Ram to go and fight Ravan. And so in that view of it, it's like maybe five lines in the Ramcharitmanas, but it's not like Kaikeyi just like being crazy and incidentally it benefited everyone. It's like a deliberate choice by the gods to influence her into doing this because it gives the outcome that they want. So then how is it fair for us to view her as evil when this was what the gods wanted. Or if you take the example of Sita, who is sort of this princess, she's very strong, like that's her 
defining characteristic is that she can bear any adversity. And that's really admirable and provides a great example for girls everywhere. But she also sits and waits for her prince to rescue her. And in other versions of the Ramayana, including some that are attributed to Valmiki, who wrote also the original Ramayana, Sita actually participates in the fighting. And in some versions, she's the one who slays the like ultimate demon. This is like never, never shown in any of the versions of the Ramayana. But this is a three or 4,000 year old version attributed to the original writer of the Ramayana. So it's very like legit. And clearly they were viewing Sita as a complex character who could have multitudes of stories attributed to her. But nowadays we never see that version. And so when you have a story that's three, 4,000 years old and has been retold through many millennia, you get thousands of versions, probably, maybe millions. There's not a lot I'll stake a claim definitively to when it comes to Ramayana, but I will say that I think it's completely wrong to say that those versions are not true versions of the mm-hmm. Ramayana. And it's a choice not to portray these women with as much complexity as they could otherwise have. In many ways, I feel like, while I, I think Kaikai is not, you know, it's not a strict retelling of the Valmiki Ramayana, for sure it's sort of like a alternate universe retelling. I think it is its own telling of the Ramayana. And speaking in this tradition where we have thousands and thousands of versions, like why can't this be its own version? Yeah. Um, so religious and cultural texts like the Ramayana and the Bible, for example, have just an Im- almost immeasurable societal power. They shape societal mores and therefore individual thinking in ways that we don't even always register. Writing a book like Kaikei, you're taking the reins on that force and you're trying to steer it a bit. What is that like? It's been a process. So when I first sat down to write this, I was sort of like, this is my story. Like I grew up with it. I've done the research. Like I'm just going to write it. And I think that was really good for me that the first draft I wrote, I wasn't thinking about potential reception. It was only after I wrote it and You know, I told my mom and she was like, oh, people are really not going to be happy about that one. (laughs) And then my editor, who is also a South Asian woman, was also like, I fully support this book and we also have to be careful. Um, I don't feel like any element of the actual story has been changed because of the knowledge that it's a very powerful cultural story that means a lot to a lot of people. But... It has changed the reception of the book, I want to say, or maybe the marketing and the um, conversations that have come out of it. I like that you brought up Christianity because we see a lot of critique for towards people who try to claim an alternate version of, say, Jesus's life than what sort of the more conservative mainstream version wants it to be. And I'd say that's a very similar response to how any alternate versions of the character of Ram get reception um, just because I think across the world we're seeing a rise of like religious nationalism. I think navigating that has been tricky. There's a fine line between people disagree with you because they just have a different religious take and that's totally okay and people disagree with you because they believe in some sort of Hindu supremacy 
and they feel like you're a threat to that and that's not okay. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really have an answer about how I'm like thinking about or navigating it because it changes every day. Like you could ask me a week from now and I might have a completely different answer. But right now my answer is that I speak up when I feel like I should. Like if people genuinely want to talk about it and talk about why I would change the myth this way. But most of the time I'm just not participating in these conversations and I'm letting other people have them. You said that the process of working on the book ultimately really strengthened your relationship to Hinduism and that that was not something you expected. Can you say a little bit more about that? What was your relationship to Hinduism before you started the book and how did it evolve after researching and writing the novel? Yeah, so um, I was raised in a Hindu household. Um, My mother is very, very religious. I did a lot of praying as a kid. We went to Mandir, which is like our temple a lot. We did all of the pujas at home. So when I was a kid, my relationship to Hinduism was very much just, you just emulate your parents, you do what they tell you to do, and you sort of are following the motions, but you aren't really thinking about it. And by the time I got to sort of middle school, high school, I found myself pretty annoyed with the religion. Um, I hated going to Mandir because you get there and there's a women's side and a men's side. And I was like, why? Like, why why do I have to do this every time? This is so annoying. You know, you get your period and all of a sudden you can't go to the temple when you're getting your period. You start to question, like, why was this old story like this? Like, yes, there are some women warriors in Hinduism, but by and large, it's mostly very male dominated and women are meant to be pure and have all of these values. And so I found myself just really unhappy with the religion and drifting away from it. So I like stopped going to temple. I stopped praying. I still participated in all of the cultural festivals and the like ceremonies and stuff because that was part of my identity at that point and I really loved it. And at this time, so I was raised, um, not raised, I mean, I am a mixed caste. My parents just never talked about it. I grew up completely just like truly ignorant of it. And I was starting to learn about it by myself. And I was like, oh, this is really bad. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I do not want to be in a religion associated with this. Like, no, no, no. And as much as I, I call myself very culturally Hindu, but I was like, not very connected to the religion anymore. And the process of writing Kaike and doing all this research made me realize that my problem was not really with Hinduism as much as it was with the mainstreaming of religion and the way that you lose a lot of nuance and dynamic and conversation when you sort of have this like pull to cultural mainstream. And in many ways, the original Hindu pull to mainstream is a product of colonialism. There was a lot of religious conversion that was happening between about 1500 and 1800. Hinduism as sort of a scattered practice was not able to hold ground. And so it's, it's in many ways a response to this and learning that there were all of these other versions out there that lots of people have had the same thoughts as I have, but they've found comfort or acknowledgement in these other versions, including some which are very caste critical, which are about dismantling and abolishing caste. I just sort of realized that I wasn't alone and that I could be a Hindu religiously as well, without having to subscribe to or obey all of these things that I found so deeply disturbing. That's why I think Kaike really dramatically changed my relationship, which is why I find it so ironic that a lot of Hindu people really um, are like 
coming after me for this book because I'm like, you don't understand. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> and the funniest thing is that I've heard from a lot of younger Hindu women, sort of people in my demographic who also like reached out to me after reading this book and they were like, you know, I've been drifting apart and this makes me want to like learn more about it again. And I'm like, great, like let's have these conversations. Do you have any advice for someone setting out to write a retelling of a foundational cultural na narrative? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I have a, a couple of pieces of advice. I think the first one is uh, if it's your foundational cultural narrative, you have a right to tell the story. Like a lot of people are going to tell you like, oh, you're not from, you didn't grow up in this country or you didn't grow up in the right part of this country. Or you don't speak the correct language or people are going to have a million reasons why they don't want you to tell this story. But if it's your story, you have a right to tell it. Even I struggled with that when I was like, should I get this book published? I was like, well, I don't know if I'm like Indian enough. Like, what? Like, first of all, this isn't even about India. It's about a religion of which I am a member. So like, what is going on in my head? Um, so I think, I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is, especially if you're a BIPOC writer, I think part of the reason why our own communities look at us so critically is because there's so little representation. When you have, you know, 20 books that reflect your background, then you're not looking at each individual book to have represented everything you want to represent about that background. But when you have maybe two books, all of a sudden the pressure is on. And so I think freeing yourself from being everything to everybody and just deciding like, this is what the story is about and I'm going to let all the other stuff go and hope that one day somebody else can write about the rest of it is sort of something you need to come to terms with because it does suck. Like there have been maybe, there were a couple of South Asian retellings by Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni about like 10 to 15 years ago published in the US. But since then in the sort of mainstream publishing US market, there have not been almost any retellings of Hindu myth. And so for a while I was like, how many stories can I cram into this book? How many uh, myth stories? Am I even allowed to like critique the character of Ram? Or is that then like ruining the experience for all of these readers who this might be their like few shots to read about their myths in books. And I sort of had to let that go. And so I think letting go of the desire to be everything to everybody is really important. I love so many things about this conversation. First of all, Vaishnavi's courage. I mean, I am struggling writing a book knowing that my parents and really only my parents will have objections. Can you imagine writing a book when a significant number of people will, in Vaishnavi's words, come after you for it? I don't think I'm strong enough. I mean, I was an ACLU lawyer at one point and plenty of people disagreed with our stands, but your own novel is different. It's personal and it's scary putting it out there under the tamest of circumstances. Yeah, my skin is way too thin. I've had a couple of experiences being trolled online and they were hard. But on the other hand, you know how much I love my one-star reviews. Can we just take a second so I can share my favorite one? Of course we can. Okay. This is an Amazon review for one of my Grandpa Hates the Birds stories. Please report to the FBI this author and other authors who publish books that contaminate our children and groom them to be future criminals. <laughs> Eve, you're an evil genius. 
I know. <laughs> no one has ever called me a groomer of future criminals. I am so jealous. Well, you should be. Right. I mean, please. <laughs> Although I do recognize that an Amazon review of a short story about a parrot that blackmails an elderly grandfather is not in the same universe as responses to a feminist rewrite of a major religious text. So l- let's just you know, enough about me. Let's go back to Vaishnavi. (laughs) Okay. Well, I also love that she went back to the earliest known version of the Ramayana and found clear support for a feminist take. You know, history is complicated. Stories are complicated. There is tremendous benefit to refusing to accept simplified takes at face value. Totally with you. Keep going. You're on a roll. Okay, I will. I also love that this more complicated exploration of religion led Vaishnavi back to faith, Mm. you know, when it strikes others as undermining faith. It reminds me of a disagreement I have with my father about interfaith marriage. He vehemently believes that interfaith marriage significantly undermines Judaism. He's concerned about there being no Jews left, and he wants to try to control that through a rigid rule. You know, Jews must marry Jews. I see interfaith marriage as leading a lot of people to have a connection with Judaism that they never would have had otherwise. Neither one of us knows what ultimately will happen. But I do think that fear often leads to an attempt to control, you know, through rigidity, often in the form of enforcing strict rules. That, again, involves a refusal to contend with complexity. And it's so hard to to grapple with complexity, but I think it's a mistake to just try to will it away. Yeah, you're reminding me of our most recent episode with Azar Nafisi about the dangers of an authoritarian mindset. I mean, not not that I'm comparing your father to an authoritarian dictator. <laughs> I'm, t- I'm just I trying have to say that in the past <laughs> when I was a but child, I never would, especially. You know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> but just that trying to control through rigidity is often fruitless at best, right, and harmful at worst. You know, much better to use subtler strategies of persuasion, like you know. Blackmail, for instance. There's my groomer of future criminals talking. Yes. <laughs> and I am going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Vaishnavi at vaishnavipatel.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Listen to Book Dreams with Julian.